just say a word of thanks to uh, Charlie and our worship team uh, for leading us in worship and our ensemble has led us today. We had a very powerful service this morning at 8.30 as well. So it is, it's been a really, really awesome today to be in the Lord's house. Well, you know, our theme here at First Baptist for 2021 is a, a journey of faith. And this is our 150th anniversary as a church. And uh, it really has been a journey of faith for First Baptist Arlington. We're still on that journey. And so during various seasons of the year this year at our church, we have been exploring faith, what it means to be on that journey of faith and various aspects of faith from the scripture. And during the month of August, our decision has been to focus on the church. A faith-filled church is where we have been. Uh, I've already shared several messages on that topic. We'll do another one today and one next Sunday. But here's what we've learned about a faith-filled church. What is a faith-filled church? We've learned that it's a church that knows what time it really is. And by that, we mean it's a church that knows what era in which it lives. It's a church that understands God's empowering and equipping presence that we're um, we're not charged to do this work on our own. God's empowered us. He's equipped us. Third, we've learned that a faith-filled church is devoted. And you remember, we've discussed that it's one thing to be devoted, but it's another thing to be devoted to the right things. And as we have watched the situation unfold in a place like Afghanistan, and we've seen violence and so many things, we've seen a lot of really devoted people. But unfortunately, many of them devoted to the wrong things. So if you're devoted to the wrong things, you can cause great havoc. And then last Sunday morning, we talked about what it means to be gospel-centered as a church. So today, I want to continue the conversation. I've entitled the message, Saved, Sound, and Serving. And the text is found in Acts 20. So if you've got your copy of the New Testament, let's turn to page 20 of Acts. Um, Paul is finishing up his third missionary journey. He has actually turned his face toward Jerusalem, much like Jesus did many years earlier, and that's where he's headed. So we pick the story up in verse 17. When you look at this text, there are many speeches in the book of Acts. This is the only speech of length and of note that is made to a Christian-only audience. So keep that in mind, and it has that feel to it, as we hear it. So verse 17, Acts 20, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Miletus is a harbor town, a coastal town. Paul could have gone on to Ephesus, but instead he sent for the elders of the church to come to him, two or three days journey for them. Verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race 
and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which your Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. He said, it is more blessed to give than receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So I want to begin this morning by setting the context of this speech. And then I'd like to have a conversation about the speech, if we may. This is Paul's final missionary journey, and his destination is Jerusalem. So, so what is going on with Paul when we come to this place? Well, if you'll, if you'll look at Acts 20, we didn't put this in the text to read, but if you'll just go back to the first couple of verses, you'll see in verse two that Paul ends up in Greece. He's in Corinth, and he stays there for three months. Now, while he's in Greece, in Corinth, he writes a very famous letter. It's the letter to the church at Rome. And here's what we learn about what's going on with Paul and why he is there in Greece and why he's going to Jerusalem. So if you look at Romans 15, Paul is telling the church in Rome what he's doing. He's in Greece. In verse 25 of Romans 15, Paul says, now however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and made sure that they've received the contribution, I'll go to Spain and I'll visit with you on the way. So he says in verse 31 of Romans 15, pray that I'll be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. So Paul in Rome, in Acts 20, first three verses, he's in Corinth and he has a collection of money. And the money has been collected from the Gentile churches that Paul has visited on this journey. And he's going to take the money to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a church that's comprised of Jewish believers. So Paul wants to show these Jewish believers that the Gentile believers care about them and love them. And so Paul says, here's the thing. 
these Gentile believers are receiving all these spiritual blessings because of the Jews' faithfulness to God. And so now we're going to share some of our material blessings with these Jewish Christians. So that's what's going on. So you get to Acts 20, so Paul is making his way there. And you come to verse seven of Acts 20. It's one of my all-time favorite stories in the book of Acts. Paul gets to Troas and he says this in verse seven. On Sunday, they gathered for worship. Now, presumably they were meeting in the evening because the people had to work those days. They didn't have Sundays off in the first century. So at the end of the work day, they gathered together to break bread, to have fellowship, to share the Lord's Supper, to share a meal together. And here's what Luke says. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Now, had I been Paul, I would have told Luke, you don't have to tell everything you know. <laughs> Let's think about this. And then Luke's not done. Verse eight, he says, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Once again, I would have said to Luke, there are a lot of ways you could have phrased this as Paul was preaching this dynamic message, revealing great insights and wisdom from the scripture. No, he just says Paul talked on and on and Eutychus falls into a deep sleep. You know, years ago, I was pastoring a little country church, my first church in Jimtown, Oklahoma and little small building and in the wintertime, it could be really cold in that building, so we had a little space heater in the back of the church, just a, a uh, y'all don't know anything about cold church buildings, but anyway, back then, it could get really cold. Well, we had a little, we had a little um, gas space heater, a little propane heater in the back of the church. Well, what you would do, y'all, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, y'all can Google space heaters. They're, they're very safe things to have in your home. So, here's the deal. So, y'all know how that kind of thing works. You turn it on, and it's okay for a little while, but guess what happens when you're in that room? Y'all know it gets hot and, you know. So I'm up there preaching and I noticed this one guy in our church and y'all, he just couldn't, he just, he just couldn't help himself. He just, he just got the, you know how you get, you just get the head bob, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes, you know, you go full out all the way back, you know, but when that happens, if somebody's seated next to you, they usually notice that. The head bob is a little, little more socially acceptable, you know, just kind of, so he was gone. So when the service was over, I just said, you know, y'all, I know sometimes we, that heater gets turned on and gets really hot in here and some propane heater and, and you know, but the cool thing is tonight only one of you fell asleep and I just want to thank you for that. Well, when church was over, six men came up and apologized for going to sleep. <laughs> so, you know, I had some really uh, honest, uh, really healthy conscience men in my church there. So I know how this feels, okay? So Paul is preaching, the guy falls asleep. Here's what's crazy. If you look at, at verse nine, it says, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Okay? Now Paul is really under some pressure here, okay? Because he has literally preached this guy to death, okay? Can y'all believe this in the Bible? It's so awesome. So, verse 10, Paul went down and threw himself, obviously, because he views it as his fault, on the young man, put his arms around him and said, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Well, the guy was alive. He raised him from the dead. So verse, here's what I love. Verse 11, he went upstairs and broke bread and ate. And then after talking six more hours <laughs> until daylight, Paul left. So it was like the guy falling off and dying was just a blip. It didn't even matter to Paul. 
Anyway, it says the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted, I guess. So anyway, so this is where Paul is. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's got this huge offering. So he's got a, a whole lot of money with him. And so some people say, well, I wonder why Paul didn't go on to Ephesus because he loved the Ephesians so much. Spent three years there. But, but if you'll look at verse 17 of Acts 20, we read a moment ago, while Paul was in Miletus, which is a smaller town, he just sent for the elders to come instead of going there. So some scholars say, well, probably the reason Paul didn't go is because he had such a large offering. He just didn't want to travel more than he needed to because he wanted to protect that money. And he tells us in Romans, please pray that I'll be kept safe and I'll get this money delivered to the church at Jerusalem, okay? So now here's what he's going to do. He tells us in this speech, he says, all right, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, if you look at Acts 20 verse four, he's not by himself. Look at what he says in verse four. It says, he was accompanied by Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus, Secundus from Thessalonica. Gaius, who was from Derby, and Timothy also. Tychicus and Trophimus, they were from Ephesus, from the province of Asia. So, these men are with Paul. Now, who are these men, and why does Luke tell you about them and tell you where they're from? Well, what's happening is Luke is letting us know that these are leaders from the breadth of Paul's ministry. Paul has been to all of these places, northern and southern Greece, on either side of the Aegean, um, from Asia, these are leaders from the multiple churches that Paul has been preaching and teaching in, and these churches have released some of their leaders to travel with Paul to represent their church. So when they get to Jerusalem, you'll have representatives from all these Gentile churches who will make their way to Jerusalem and assist with giving the offering. It says a lot of things about the churches to me. It shows, uh, uh, to me it says something about their maturity, the fact they'd be willing to let some of their leaders go. It says something about their commitment to missions. It also says something about the unity of the church. All these people, they were in these various different places across that part of the world, but they felt like they were a part of the same church. And so they were coming together and they were bringing this offering with Paul to Jerusalem, okay? Now with that said, let's talk about the church. Go for it, Trip. The church. What about the church? Well, here's what I'd say. You know, when you're looking for a church, I don't know what goes into your mind. You know, in America today, uh, let, let me say this, the church saved in sound is what I wanna talk about after I look at this, this message from, from Paul. When you're looking for a church, what are you looking for? What, what, what is it that you say, okay, my, my husband and I, my, my girlfriend and I, or just me, or whoever it is, our family, we're looking for a, we're looking for a new church. What, what is it that you are looking for? So in America today, when, when you do all these surveys, as you might imagine, um, there, all kinds of answers are given to that question. You wouldn't be surprised by that, would you? We're, we're a very consumeristic culture. So does it surprise you that the answers very often are given from that perspective? But I would just, I would just say to us, what, what is it that we should look for when we're thinking about a church, if we wanna be a part of a church? Well, I think there are some great clues in this speech. Because this, this message, like I said from Paul, this is Paul's only speech, lengthy speech in the book of Acts given just to Christians. And he talks about his past, his present, his future. He talks about his work with them, where he is now, where he's headed. But at the core of this message, he, 
he really emphasizes the core message of Christianity and how his ministry is connected to it. I would pause and just say a word of thanks here at, at this point to some incredible scholars. Um, for example, one of my favorite New Testament scholars is N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright has written a book called The Biography of Paul. And I've been reading through that biography. It's, it's an incredible take on, on Paul's life. It, it, it so helps set the context for these kind of passages. So I would, I, I, I'm grateful for guys like N.T. Wright. John Stott. John Stott's written a commentary on the book of Acts. Also, a lot of insight on this particular passage, uh, I would say. And so I'm grateful for them. And so I've, I've, I've gleaned so much from men like that and others who have just made it possible for us to study the scripture. So when I look at this, at this speech, I want to point you to just several things real quickly, if I can. As you think about a church, here, here, basically here's what Paul is saying. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to Jerusalem. Then I'm going to Rome. I will never see y'all again. So this is what I want. This is my hope. I want you to understand who you need to be as the people of God. So let me do this real quickly. First of all, when we're looking at a church, gospel should be essential. If you're looking at a church, you need to, if you're a Christian, then you need to, in my opinion, you need to take into consideration, does the church believe in and live the gospel. So for example, look at verse 21. Paul says, while I've been with you, I want you to remember both Jews and Greeks, I preach to them that they must turn in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. In other words, doesn't matter who you are, Jesus is the answer. Paul says, doesn't matter. The gospel is the gospel. He says in verse 28, he says that the church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And so Paul has the gospel at the very center of everything he does in ministry. And I want you to notice how he words it. He says it very specifically. He says repentance and faith. The gospel includes repentance because here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel has an edge to it and we don't always like it. You see, in my culture, in contemporary American culture, most Americans want the church to be the sugar of the earth. That they want the church to be there just to, to sweeten things. They want the church to be there to just only, to only offer just a word of comfort. To always make them feel better about what they're doing and how they're living. They don't, they don't want the, the, many people in our culture, they want the church to be the sugar. Well, it's interesting. Jesus said, not only are we the light of the world, he said we are the what of the earth? The sugar of the earth, right? Salt of the earth. Well, guess what? I like salt, do y'all? You know, if you ever go, let me recommend this to you. Don't ever go to a cardiologist, okay? <laughs> they don't like salt, okay? I don't know what it is with them, but they don't like salt, you know? Um, anyway, but um, I like salt. So I don't know about y'all, I put salt on stuff that I eat. Not because I don't like it. It's not like I go, oh gosh, I gotta put this on here. No, I put it on, they go, mm. I mean, a baked potato, come on, man. A baked potato, a little butter, a little extra butter. And, and I know people say, you know, there's salt already in the butter. Mm-mm, no, there's not. <laughs> there's not my kind of salt in butter. So, but guess what? If, you, if, if you're going, we just got back from Florida. If you go in the ocean and you got a cut, guess what? You go, whoa, man, it, it stings. Well, it does, it cleanses. 
Well, Paul says, here's the gospel, repentance and faith. You see, the gospel is about transformation. And so proclaiming the gospel sometimes means that we have to accept the fact that the things that we want to do may not be what's best for us and we have to address them and we need the power of God to address them in our lives. So the gospel is about transformation. Then you put your faith in Christ. That's what Paul says. And Paul says the reason Christ is worthy of that is because he's bought us with his own blood. So the church is supposed to be centered in the gospel. The gospel is essential. Second, worship. Notice Paul says in verse 20, Paul says, I, I preached and I went house to house. Now what that means is he took place in the worship life of the church in Ephesus because the church is met in houses. He said, I taught publicly. Well, we know that he rented a place and taught, but he went from place to place preaching in people's homes. And as I said, you go back to Acts 20 verse seven, the church there in Troas met on the first day of the week. They gathered for worship. It was a day to honor the resurrection of Christ. That's why we meet on Sunday as the people of God. Worship is essential to our spiritual health. The worship of God corporately as God's people. It builds a weekly rhythm into our lives. We have these annual celebrations, Advent, Easter. All of that helps to build a rhythm into our lives where we recognize that we are a part of a cosmic story that's much bigger and grander than us. The grace of God is also mentioned. As a matter of fact, when you're reading this speech, it almost sounds like one of Paul's letters. It seems like the things that Paul was concerned about in his epistles, you find in this closing speech to the church at Ephesus, the grace of God. Look at verse 24, Paul says, I was proclaiming the goodness, the good news, the euangelion is the Greek word, the good news, the gospel of the grace of God. Well, the gospel at the very essence of it is a word about God's grace. It's God gifting us life. And then the kingdom of God, verse 25, Paul says, I, I'm not gonna get to preach the kingdom uh, for you anymore. Well, Paul preached about the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is so important to the church. The church is the place we should learn about the kingdom of God. As I've shared with y'all before, you know I'm a proponent of inaugurated eschatology. I believe the kingdom of God was established by Jesus and we're supposed to be representatives of the kingdom of God on this earth. We live a certain way. We show examples of the kingdom. Well, Paul said, I'm preaching the kingdom of God. The church ought to be a place where the kingdom of God is taught. We understand that we've been called by God to live a certain way as kingdom citizens. The purpose of God, verse 27, Paul says, I'm preaching to you Bule is the Greek word, the, the full counsel of God, the, the complete wisdom of God, the, the purposes of God is one way to translate that. Paul says, I want your life to be connected to the whole counsel and will and wisdom of God. That's God's desire for us, that we'll be connected to something that is much bigger than just our own life. But then Paul admonishes these believers because he says this, faithfulness is required for believers. As followers of Jesus, it's not an easy life. Following Jesus is not the easy way. It's not the broad path. It's the narrow way. Following Jesus is challenging. Paul says in verse 23, verse 24, he says, look, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, but I know hardships are there. I, I know that's what I'm facing. He's already been told that by the prophets. People have told him, here's what's gonna happen if you go. He said, I still feel compelled to go, but I'm gonna suffer. Well, that's an example to these believers. He says in verse 32, he says, this, this message I'm giving you will build you up. It'll help you be faithful. He tells the leaders, verse 31, be on your guard. 
Be faithful to God, be faithful to the truth. Verse 24, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to complete the task given to me. I would, I would say to me and you, that's our job. Run the race. You know, God's not going to run the race for you. He's not. Now, he'll, he'll mark out the path. He will, he'll empower you. He'll equip you. He'll even put witnesses in your life to cheer you on, to encourage you. He'll fill you with his spirit, but he won't run the race. You and I have to run the race. We've got to be diligent, vigilant. We have to do our part. Faithfulness is required for believers. But guess what? There's a great prize. First of all, just being in the presence of God. But look at verse 32. Paul says there's an inheritance, a future inheritance laid up for those who are, who are part of the, the sanctified body of Christ. There's this, there's this gift that God is going to give all of us. So when I look at this, this speech, it's, a, it's almost like a summary of of what the Christian life is about and really what the church is supposed to be about. Here's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of Paul's admonition to the church at Colossae, where Paul said there, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's, that's a Psalm 1 person. That's the kind of church that Paul is describing in this message. And so what I would say is when we're looking for a church, when I think about the kind of church I want to be a part of, I want it to be saved and sound, rooted in the gospel, and have sound theology, sound doctrine, committed to the lordship of Jesus, and rooted in his truth, guided by his spirit and his presence, but committed to what he's revealed to us. One other thing I'd say about the church that I think is important, and that is the church should be a place of serving. So let me just show you this real quick. Look at verse 17. Paul says, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the presbyteroi, presbyteros in singular, the elders. Okay, the elders. He said, I sent for the elders of the church. Now in Greek, that word presbyteroi, you know what it means? Old. I mean, its core meaning just means to be old, okay? So that's why anytime I have um, visitors who have a name tag who come to my house and knock on the door and it says elder so-and-so, I always ask them, how old are you? Because the word elder, it means something. But y'all know in this text, he wasn't just calling for the old people, was he? Who was he, who was he calling for? Leaders. So by this time, the church is starting to get organized. We don't know everything about it because all of our, all the questions we might have are not answered. But we know enough to know the church is getting organized. And so Paul himself has actually appointed some of these people. They're elders, they're, they're leaders in the church, okay? You also have another word if you look at verse 28. Verse 28 is one of those verses in my study Bible that's underlined, highlighted, because it's a direct word, I believe, to people like me. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers. Now that Greek word is episkopoi or episkopos. We get our word episcopal from that word. The word elder comes out of the Jewish world. The word elder, presbyteros, comes out of the synagogue. The word episkopos comes from the Greek world. It's a secular term for an overseer. But Paul uses that word to refer to those who are serving the church. Then he uses another word um, the word shepherd, 
poimenos in Greek, be shepherds of the church of God. Then he makes a reference to the church and the church is portrayed as sheep. It's, it's God's church, it's the flock. And notice how much God loves the sheep. It says he bought with his own blood. And so here's what you have. You have the church, which is made up of the sheep. This is the flock of God, the people of God. And then the Lord is assembling an organization and leaders in the church. Well, who are the leaders? Well, they are the, the elders. They are the, the bishops, the overseers, if you will. And they're the shepherds. Now, there's a lot of question about, are these all the same people? Were the elders and the overseers, were that, was that overseer really more of a job assigned to the elders? How does the shepherd connect to all that? And, and, and the truth is, y'all, when you're just looking at the New Testament, some of those questions are a little bit hard to answer. We just know they all exist. Here's what I would say we take from it, though. The reason all of that exists is so that people can serve God and can make sure that the church is tended to. That's why it all exists, is to tend the flock of God. You know, and I think about my role as your pastor. I'm a shepherd, and that's how I see myself. Now, a couple weeks ago, we had a business meeting here on Wednesday night in our church, and we reminded the congregation that I'm the president of this corporation, and we elected Kurt Grice as our vice president. Some of you were here that night, okay? Now, do you think Kurt and I want y'all to call me Mr. President and Mr. Vice President? Only a couple of y'all, but no. You know what? Because that's not who we are. We're pastors. You know what we are? We're shepherds. Why do you think we quit what we were doing and decide to go into this with our lives? Because we feel called to shepherd God's people, not run the church. So I look at our staff, Barry, who is on that uh, upper level leadership team with me. Then look at all of our ministers, the people that are a part of our church leadership, the ministers and directors on our staff. You know who they all really are? Shepherds. That's really what we do. All of our assistants, everybody that's working here at this church, what we're trying to do is shepherd the flock of God. You know, the people of God are not cattle. They're never, they're never portrayed as cattle. I'm sorry for you Texans. Y'all are a little more familiar with cattle. But you don't lead cattle, you drive cattle, right? You don't drive sheep, you lead sheep. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of relationship. And so those of us who are responsible here we're shepherds, and guess what? We have a very complex web, a collaborative network of leadership at First Baptist Arlington. Let's talk about our church. How does our church do it? You know, every church is different. Churches have different structures, and you can find just about every model of church governance you wanna find in the New Testament. I mean, you, you can find some evidence. For example, let's say the pastor of the church right now in Rome, who is the pastor of the church located in Rome. Pope Francis. Let's say he writes a letter to all the churches throughout Roman Catholicism. Guess what? They read it and they listen. You know why? He's their shepherd. Well, where does that come from? Is there any evidence of that? Well, y'all read Acts 15. What happened in Acts 15? James, James the Just, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, along with the elders, wrote a letter and sent it to all the churches, right? So you've got that. You've got plural elders, plural episkopos. So you've got people who say, well, there should be bishops or maybe there should be elders. Then you have a church like ours, where you also have evidence in the New Testament of congregational governance. What does the Bible say in Acts 13? When the church at Antioch came together, the whole church fasted and prayed and decided God had called Paul and Barnabas to go 
and serve as missionaries. You remember that? That was a congregational decision. It didn't come down from Jerusalem. No bishop ordered it. Nobody was in charge of it. The congregation decided. So our church lives in that world where you have this complex collaborative web of, of paid staff members and then church leaders who work together. But guess what we're doing? That we work together with the leaders of our church, not to run the church, but to serve the church because we're all shepherds. And this is the flock of God. And it's our responsibility to provide that kind of oversight and wisdom that you would expect when you, you want to use that word elder. It is a complicated way to do it. But you know what? I still think it's the best way to do it. I think it's the way we do it. Does it take a little more time? You know, when I was a young pastor, one of my mentors used to tell me, he said, you know, the best form of church governance is the benevolent dictator. He said, the only problem is it's really hard to find a benevolent dictator. It's easy to find dictators. Well, you know what? That's what I've discovered. Rare is a benevolent dictator. They might start that way. They rarely end up that way. Well, our church doesn't work that way. We work together. And you know what? I'm glad because this, this is your church. You're the sheep, you're the flock of God. And I live among you as a shepherd and a pastor and I love it. And so here's what I would say. Here's my prayer for us. I want us to be a church much like what Paul's described. Saved, sound, and together serving. Because that to me gives all of us an opportunity to live together as God's people and accomplish the things of God in the ways of God in God's timing. That's our hope and our dream. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, for these stories. Lord, I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and the wisdom you gave him, the insight that he had. I thank you, Lord, for his gifting. And then I thank you for these leaders of these churches that came alongside Paul and served with him. It's a beautiful thing. And so Lord, I pray today for our church. I thank you for this church. Thank you for the wisdom that's in this place, for all the, these, these lay leaders who are so invested here, who give their time and their energy, who've poured their lives into this church and we serve alongside them. Thank you for our staff as we try to serve together humbly. We're grateful for that and for the opportunity to do it. And so we pray your continued blessings on us as we engage and endeavor to lead this church into the future. And so Lord, today we remember the needs of those who are on our minds and our hearts today. We ask you to be a God of provision in every respect. And we trust, Lord, that your will will be done in our lives as we seek to serve you every day. And we pray that all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.